Welcome to Grow Course Class number four. As we start off the new year here in January, so I want to say thanks for coming, guys. I know that, uh, well, it's been a rough week for a, a lot of people. It is a new year, and that means a lot of sickness for a lot of folks here. I got about five phone calls today, and I think about a half our church is incapacitated with uh, some uh, stomach virus. So you are the survivors. Congratulations, at least for today. <laughs> but it may be in you. <laughs> Resonate within you even now as I speak, ready to explode. But no. But uh, anyway, I am glad that you're here. And once again, for those who are new, thanks for coming, joining us. We've actually been going through Ephesians, doing an inductive Bible study in the book of Ephesians the last several months. We've gone through the entire book. We've surveyed it. We've charted its main themes. And tonight we're going to go back and now go through it in a little more depth starting with chapter 1. So those who are new, glad you're here. It's a great time to start and join us for this Grow Course in Ephesians. And in the spirit of the Grow Course this year, since it is a new year, I've been asking for Grow Course photos that would illustrate this idea of growth, growth in the Word of God. And I received a few entries this month, and one was from Christy P.K. She told me that she was growing or trying to resurrect her bamboo plant, which I guess had died partially due to neglect, right? Complete neglect, she would say, yes. And that she's bringing it back to life. So she gave me a picture. I had to color it in here. This is a picture of her bamboo shoot, which she is nursing back to health and hopefully to vitality. I said, well, what's your strategy, Christy? She said, well, I'm watering it consistently. That is a good thing. Water is helpful. So she's watering it twice a day with a little water, with a little sun. Hopefully it will grow into a large bamboo plant. And speaking of bamboo, after I got that email, Christy, I was just thinking about one of our family vacations last year where we as a family were camping out near the Gulf of Mexico, and we found a large bamboo patch. Really, you could call it a bamboo forest. And I brought a picture of what a healthy, vibrant, mature bamboo forest would look like. Blew it up for you this morning, so you can this evening, so you can take a look at it. And here we have it. Right here is my son CJ in the bamboo forest. So Christy, here here's a vision. What can be someday that little meek and mild bamboo shoot. This is what it can turn out to be one day. So what's it take to get from this? Oh, I need a wireless. This to this. Lots of love, yeah. Lots of watering, lots of sun, and lots of time, right, to get to this. This is what we're aiming for. But you don't get bamboo forest overnight, do you? It is a process, is it not? Well, it is great to be able to, you know, hear a good sermon, to read a good book that unpacks Scripture in a clear and compelling way. That's grace to us when we hear those kind of messages or read those books. But you know what? The greatest growth in my life, those aha moments where I've seen spiritual truth, that God's delivered that truth to my heart, hasn't been necessarily a sermon. Those have been helpful. 
But the greatest growth in my life has been that consistent time in the Word of God. It's consistently being watered by the Word of God and learning to water myself as well, so to speak, through the Word of God. It's that accumulative effect over time as we're immersing ourselves in God's Word that we see the greatest growth, the most vibrant growth. And that's why we're here tonight. I know that the Grow Course and what we're doing, it's not flashy. It's about faithfulness, isn't it? Being in the Word, day in, week in, month in, month out, and trusting God for that type of growth. That that little bamboo shoot will one day be a whole forest of bamboo growth, so to speak, to use that analogy or metaphor in our lives. So this is the fourth class. This is our fourth class of, I think we have ten classes total for the Grow Course. So we're just beginning. We are just beginning. We have a lot of work to do. So don't give up. It's still early on, all right? You may say, you may get your homework and say, oh, God, ten questions, homework. You know what? Corey will give him the answers next month. You know what? I will give him the answers. But you know what? True, lasting, enduring, deep growth. Learn to discover these truths for yourself. I want to help you do it. But if you want lasting growth, it's going to come from you studying and being faithful. And I know that you're here, you desire to be faithful, so I commend you for that. just want to encourage you with that as well. But another encouragement as well, as we spoke about last month, we have help, don't we, in this discovery process. As we delve into the Word of God, hopefully daily, we're not alone. We have the help of the Holy Spirit. That gives me such comfort and confidence to know that. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, He is the interpreter of Scripture. You know what? The Holy Spirit is a willing helper to all who study it. And that's that's good. That's good news for each one of us this evening. So my prayer for you is that the Apostle Paul, as we're going to go through this morning, this evening, in chapter 1 of Ephesians. But let me read it to you again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. A marvelous prayer from the Apostle Paul. He prays this. For the Ephesians, this is God's word to us as well today. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. By the way, when this word wisdom is used in the Bible, in the Pauline corpus, in his letters particularly, this wisdom is God's saving work in Christ. So God, may he give you a spirit, yes, his spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Yes, I I trust God will do that tonight. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? May we experience that even this evening as we study. So with that in mind, let's pray. And open up our time together. Oh Lord, I do pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom, of revelation this evening and the knowledge of you. Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to comprehend the marvelous truths we're about to discuss and study. Lord, we're not asking 
for fresh blessing or, or, or revelation this, this evening in one sense. Lord, we're asking that you would just open our eyes to what you've already revealed, to the spiritual bl- blessings in Christ that are ours in Christ as Christians, as believers. Lord, that we would walk away this evening in awe of who you are and that you have placed us in your Son, Jesus Christ, in all the blessings that you bestowed upon us in Christ, that we'd be able to marvel at these truths this evening, that we'd be edified, built up in our faith as a result. Oh, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned today, we're going to drop into chapter 1 of Ephesians. And we're going to do so with the bigger chart of Ephesians in our hand and hopefully in our mind as well. And as I say that, I realize we have some new folks here. If you are new, I want to make sure everyone even new has the proper material for tonight. In fact, would anyone here not have received a chart, a book chart from, on Ephesians? What's that? Could you hold? Got one back there, Carmen and a few. I want to make sure you have this as a guide. Would anyone not have the homework assignment that we're going to go through tonight? We have a few back there. I have a few extra copies. We're going to drop into chapter 1, as I mentioned. But I wanted you to have that chart close at hand. I was talking to one member of our GROW course here this morning. I just realized that there might be a tendency or temptation to ditch the chart that we did and just answer the questions. You got your homework assignment, you go to it. But I want you to be able to answer these questions with the big picture in mind. We've worked three months, for those who are new, on charting out the book of Ephesians. I want this to be by your side and in your mind as you go through the homework questions, both today and next month and the following months as well. Okay? Why? Because it's so easy to lose the forest through the trees, isn't it? You fail to see the big picture, the context for which, in which we're studying these particular verses or paragraphs. So keep this by your side. This was my chart. You're maybe a little different. That's fine. I'm using these divisions and segments and these titles. Once again, yours may be different. That is okay. I just wanted to give you something tangible that I've used and has helped me as you study the book of Ephesians. So we've said three months. We've got our charts. And tonight we're going to look at a little more in depth now, chapter one. We're, we've, th- we've finished the survey, the observation stage. Now we're going to be doing the analysis of chapter one. Just to back up for a second, for those who've been here with us the last few months, we've charted out the book of Ephesians and we've divided it into two major divisions, right? Chapters one through three, which are the what? Indicatives, the truths. What is true about us in Christ? Then we have the latter three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, which are the imperatives. How we then should live. What should we do based on these truths? And in your chart there, I've labeled these divisions, the first three chapters, the Christian's wealth. The Christian's wealth. In the latter three chapters, the Christian's walk. That word walk, capitalizing on that word, which is used five times in those latter chapters. You can also uh, label those divisions the Christian's purpose, and the Christian's practice. That might be another good title. You may have your own as well. And as you drop into chapter 1, I've also labeled that chapter in my chart there, the Father's purpose, the Father's purpose. And we're going to unpack that a little bit as well this evening. 
then we have our three paragraph titles for chapter one. Mine were these, based on the three paragraphs that follow the salutation. That first really long paragraph, verses 3 through 14, I labeled every spiritual blessing. The next paragraph, sealed with the Spirit. Then thirdly, a prayer for an enlightened heart. We also talked about last month some of the key verses or some of the key themes we found in the book of Ephesians. You know what? Every key word that we studied last month is found in this first chapter with the exception of the word walk. And that word walk is really predicated on all that we're going to talk about tonight. We talked last month about some of the key phrases or words found in Ephesians, like in Christ. Key phrase, remember that? The word love. The word grace. Saints. Church. Riches. Inheritance. And this curious phrase, in the heavenlies. All these themes, all these key words are found in our chapter 1. In fact, let me propose this. If you comprehend this first chapter, you will comprehend the book of Ephesians. If you rightly understand this first chapter, it's going to unlock this whole book for you. Because the themes that are unpacked in this book are all found in introductory form right here in chapter 1. So with that in mind, I've given you for your homework 10 questions to help answer, that will help you analyze chapter 1. But because we have a little smaller crowd this evening, we do something a little different. We're just going to work together here. We're not going to go into our typical groups. We'll probably do that next month. We're going to go through the answers together of those 10 questions that I gave you. And as you go through those 10 questions, hopefully we'll be able to gain a better understanding of how this first chapter fits together and its major themes, and that we'd understand it better. So, a little different than the previous weeks, so we're going to do the interpretation on the fly, okay? I'm going to do it with your help, so I'm going to solicit your input. Got to be bold tonight. You haven't had a chance to bounce it off anyone, so I realize when I ask for an answer, you may be a little hesitant. That's okay. Go for it, and uh, we'll explore and discuss it together. So the first question that we had, even before that, let me uh, actually start with just the salutation for Ephesians, and then we'll jump into the first full paragraph. We start with the greeting. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Right off the bat, catch that phrase, the will of God. We see God's sovereign will, his purpose and plan. I think Paul is being intentional here. An apostle by the will of God. It was his plan. It was his purpose that I be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who's he addressing? To the saints. That's a key word we're going to see throughout Ephesians. It's going to resurface again and again in our book. And then look at his greetings. It says, grace to you and peace. Two major themes that we're going to encounter in Ephesians. Grace to you and peace. Shalom. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul gives his introductory greeting. In most letters, we expect he's going to go right on to the thanksgiving and give thanks for those he's writing to. But in the book of Ephesians, he inserts this long doxology, verses 3 through 14. This doxology or eulogy is actually one long sentence in Greek, remember? It's like an explosion, an outburst of praise, a thanksgiving to God. In other words, Paul begins his letter by going vertical. 
Okay? I'm praising God. Before he gets around to thanking. Okay? The Ephesians themselves. Praise to God. So before going horizontal in your homework, who is the recipient and who is the subject of the opening doxology? Verses 3 through 14. What do you guys come up with? Sean. Believers, the recipient and subject. Anyone else? God. Okay, and the correct answer is God. Let's look at this verse 3. Blessed be who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a praise of God the Father. He is the recipient of the praise. He receives the praise. And he is the subject of this opening doxology. This is a God-centric doxology. He is being praised. Well, why is the Father being praised in these opening verses? Why is he being praised? What is he being praised for? Yes, great. Yeah, these, these are long Pauline sentences, but you, you caught it right off the bat. What is your name, by the way? George. Thank you, George. Yeah, great answer. God the Father is being praised because he's the origin, he's the source of every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. So Paul is praising God the Father because he is the origin, he's the giver of every spiritual blessing. And that is the title of this first paragraph, Every Spiritual Blessing That We Have in Christ. Well, what are specifically these spiritual blessings that are referred to in verse 3? Let's start with this second question. How many spiritual blessings do you find in this opening doxology? You may vary a little bit here on the answer, but anyone count them? Okay, you have four there? Okay. 15, 16. Wow, quite a disparity. Okay, any others? Okay, six appeared. Okay, four, six. Jose's hedging a little bit here. Okay, okay, he's fudging. Christy, seven. Okay, seven. Okay, seven. Ten, wow. Okay, so we have about four to 15. Well, Paul doesn't really say, here's the next spiritual blessing. He mentions it in verse three, and then he lists what seem to be all these blessings we have in Christ. Well, the answer I came up with was seven. All right? So we'll go through those. And you could argue with me a little bit here. Let's look at these spiritual blessings that Paul is praising God the Father for. Number one, in verse four, he chose us in him, who's in him, in Christ, to be what? Holy and blameless. This first blessing is that he chose us. When? Before the foundation of the world. We're going to explore that a little more later. Second blessing that I see, verse five, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So he chose us. He predestined us for adoption. He brought us into his family as his own children. And look at verse 7. We see the third one. At least I see the third one there. In him we have what? We have redemption. We have been redeemed through his blood. Moving on. Verse 9, I see the fourth. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. We're going to talk a lot more about that coming up. All right? Fifthly, 
Verse 11, in him we have what? We have an, obtained an inheritance. Have obtained an inheritance. We're going to talk more about what that inheritance is and how we should interpret that. Sixthly, verse 13, we have what? Been sealed, right? With the Holy Spirit. And lastly, that Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. So those are the seven that I came up with. I don't think this list is exhaustive, okay? I think it's a sampling that Paul is giving and just this outpouring of praise to God the Father. So you may be able to say, I think there's a couple more there. Okay, that's fine. But what we're capturing is that this whole doxology is about the spiritual blessings that you, that me, that we have in Christ. He chose us, holy and blameless, but he didn't stop there, did he? He didn't just repair the damage that sin had done to us. That would be more than we deserve. He didn't just cleanse us and put us aside. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago when I was preaching on this topic of adoption, he didn't just like disinfect us, cleanse us, and then put us away in his little toy bin, you know. No, no. He cleansed us. He made us holy and blameless. But he didn't stop. He brought us into his family. He brought us to his table. He brought us to his banqueting table as his children. Love the song that we sing, sing at Paul Vista often, Jesus, thank you. And there's that refrain that he seated, seated us at his table. Well, God the Father sits his children at his table. We are his children. Yes, he's chosen to be holy and blameless, but he didn't stop. He brought us into his family. And we are now sons and daughters of Christ. We are now heirs with Christ because we are his children. We are now receive all that Christ has received. We're in the beloved. We are in Christ. So he chose us. He predestined us to be sons, to be heirs. How do you do it? By redeeming us, by purchasing us, by redeeming us from our sin. But you know what? He didn't stop there either, did he? He also revealed to us his purpose and plan. See, we're his children now. We're his friends in Christ. And he reveals his plans to his children, to his friends. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm all about. He reveals the mystery of his will from all eternity past, verses 9 and 10, that we may know, that we may know what God is up to. And then he gives us an inheritance as his heirs. And we are his inheritance as well. And then he seals us all with the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing this inheritance as his children. Those are the spiritual blessings that we see in Christ. And this is what Paul is praising God for the Father. And what we should be praising him for as well. So in this first chapter, we see what? The Father's plan, right? We also see all the Trinity is involved, isn't it? This isn't just an endeavor of the Father. Oh, it's the Father's plan, right? He chose us. He predestined us. Blessings one and two. But blessings three, four, and five are the work of his Son. It's the Son who redeemed us. It is he who came to die for us. It is he who came to execute the Father's plan, right? It is the Son. And it's through the Son that the mystery of God and his plan is made known. It's in the Son that we've obtained an inheritance, then in comes the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have to be left out of this equation, is he? 
He's in blessing six and seven. He's the one that seals our salvation, right? He's the guarantee of our inheritance, that all these blessings really are ours, that all these blessings really do belong to us. So this is a truly Trinitarian endeavor. It's God the Father, but it's also God the Son and the Holy Spirit working together that we may have these special blessings in Christ. We see that God's purposes are sure. Oh, this is good news, isn't it? Friends, church, you are not an afterthought in God's mind. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. You are part of God the Father's cosmic plan of reconciliation. You didn't just stumble upon Christ. No, he chose you. He found you and he redeemed you. All this we see in chapter 1. You may say, I want to believe that, Corey, but you know what? At times, I'm tempted to doubt. You know what? We all are at times. But God the Father sent his Son. When his Son executed the Father's plan of redemption, he ascended back to heaven, and he gave us his Holy Spirit. Proof that we are his. He gave us his Spirit the spirit of sonship that cries, Abba, Father, the internal witness that says, this is true of me. I belong to him. I am his child. The internal witness that speaks to our doubts. It says his work is effectual. And these blessings are true. A spirit that testifies that all we talked about is true of you in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Hmm. God the Father's plan, executed by the Son, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Well, thirdly, in your homework, I ask the question, are these spiritual blessings that, that are true of us in Christ? This is the verse 3, that in the heavenly places. You see that phrase. We see that five times in the book of Ephesians. He who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, are these present blessings? that we can experience now, here on earth? What are these blessings that we're just to anticipate, look forward to in heaven one day? What do you think? What do you come, what do you come up with in your study of Ephesians? Are they present blessings or those yet to be experienced? I heard both over here. Present, okay, over here. What, what verse are you referring to, Christy? I'm sorry. Verse. Yes. Yes, it's a plan for the fullness of time in the ESV. That is true in terms of his ultimate cosmic plan. But I think the answer, best answer would be both. In the sense, yes, there's blessings to look forward to, but we can experience now the fruit and blessing of our redemption now here on earth as well. So these are present blessings to be experienced. Although we've been chosen, predestined, that we're sons we're not just one day will be sons. No, we're sons now. We're part of the family now. And we're going to realize that, realize that more fully when we get to heaven. Yes, indeed. But we can experience those blessings now of our sonship in Christ, of our redemption. 
we can experience now the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That eternal witness that says we are his and we belong to him. So these blessings in the heavenlies, the way in which Paul is speaking about them in the book of Ephesians, say yes, therefore, yes, anticipation of what's to come, but there also can be experienced now here on earth as well. What comfort this must have brought? Particularly to Paul. Where was Paul when he was writing this? In jail, imprisoned, in chains, as he says in the book of Ephesians. What comfort and confidence this must have brought him. You know, Paul always wanted to go to Rome. That's probably not the way he thought he would go to Rome in chains, was it? Appealing to Caesar. He wrote a book, a letter, right? Called the Romans. In that he lays out his plans to go to Rome. And really he saw Rome as a launching pad to further ministry. To go to Spain. That he had never been to Rome at the time. He was probably preparing the way for the church there to receive him. And from there go on to Spain. You know what? As far as we know, Paul never made it to Spain. Well, he made it to Rome. But he made it to Rome as a prisoner. So here he is under house arrest. Oh, he's in Rome. No Spain. Here he's under house arrest. Well, at least I have a wife. Huh? No, I don't have a wife either, do I? <laughs> at least I have family. Children. No. No children either. That we're aware of. So what does Paul do? He counts his blessings. He counts his spiritual blessings in Christ. Oh, what comfort that must have brought him. What comfort it can bring us this evening as well as we learn to count our spiritual blessings in Christ. Just as Paul was, so we too can enter in. Even when we're maybe discouraged, life hasn't quite unfolded the way you thought it would. Some of your dreams and ambitions have not been realized. You suffer the pain of living in a fallen world. And yet, these blessings are true for you. And they're a reason for praise. And they're a reason for worship. And they're a reason for utmost gratitude as well. Paul could say, even as he's in chains, I am in Christ. And it's that phrase that we see throughout Ephesians, isn't it? Particularly in this first, in this doxology, this phrase, in Christ. That's how many times we see that phrase, in Christ. This is question number four in your homework. Six. Do I hear more? Nine, ten, twelve. All right. Well, I'm looking at this phrase, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. Okay? Those together, that constellation of phrases, they're all speaking about being in Christ, positionally in Christ. All right? I counted 11, okay? Jose, 12. You got to show me that one later on, man, you know? Oh, the Spanish. Oh, nice one. Yeah. That's great. More blessings in Spanish. Huh? That's right, buddy. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, what is the significance of this phrase, in Christ? What does that mean? Why is that so significant? Any ideas? Yes, Gabby. Exclusivity. Explain that. Okay. Good. 
good. Great. It's him or nothing at all. Right. Great. That is true. All these blessings are found in Christ. Exactly. In Christ. Christy, anything to add to that? That he is a God the Father, right? It is that, that term isn't introduced so much in this first chapter, but certainly it is true, Christy. And that allows us, right, to receive all these blessings from the Father, right? Through Jesus Christ. Absolutely. He is the instrument right? The means by which we receive these blessings, but they're found in Christ, right? In Christ. Right. You can say in one sense they're birth of the Father, but certainly they're realized in Christ. And of course, we know Christ is with the Father from all eternity. So that's when it gets a little mind-bending, doesn't it? But certainly they're fulfilled, made possible only in Christ, right? Right, in Christ. What a rich phrase, in Christ. Because we're in Christ, all these blessings are ours. Well, question five. Why did God choose us in Christ? In other words, what was his purpose in choosing us in Christ? Any thoughts there based on the verses we find here in this doxology? Then verses 4, 5, and 6. To the praise of his glorious. So he chose us that he may receive glory and praise. To his praise. Of what? His grace. Yeah. Good. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Right. Both those are correct answers. He chose us, right? It says very directly. Why that we should be holy and blameless? Of course, he did that ultimately. The ultimate reason was to the praise of his glorious grace, right? In and through Christ Jesus. He chose you to be holy and blameless. But that implies something, doesn't it? What does it imply? It implies that we were not holy and blameless, right? That we were not. He chose us to make us holy and blameless in Christ. So what were we like before Christ? Holy, yeah. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We'll get to get to there next month. Let's kind of take a sneak peek now, shall we? This is you prior to Christ. Verse 1 in chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the year, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ouch. That was you. That was me. And God chose you to be holy and blameless. In verse 5, according to the purpose of his will, um, that kind of, doesn't quite capture it fully. I think the ESV or the NASB has a little better. I think the NASB says to the good pleasure and will. Oh, God did it. There's this Greek word there that refers to pleasure. Oh, he chose you to be holy and blameless. Why? Oh, it was his delight to do so. It was to his good pleasure and to his will. 
You don't see that word good pleasure in our ESV there, but it's, it's there, believe me. So he chose you to be holy and blameless, even though you weren't holy and blameless. Why? Oh, because there's a delight because of his will into the praise of his glorious grace that he may deserve the rightful glory. That's why he did it. For ultimately for his glory. He chose you to have all these blessings in Christ. He chose you. He elected you. Notice he did not elect you to the praise of his glorious foreknowledge. He didn't choose you thinking that, well, you know what, he's going to turn out to be a pretty good guy. You know? I'm going to choose him based on what I know to be true. He chose you when you weren't holy and blameless. He chose you because of no merit of your own. He chose you to the praise of his grace, not to the praise of his prophetic foreknowledge. He knew how you would turn out. No, no, he chose you despite (laughs) yourself. He chose you in your sinful condition based on nothing in and of yourself worthy of salvation. He chose you. Oh, what's the fruit of this, church? Oh, the fruit of this doctrine. We truly grasp it. It's worship. It's worship of our true and sovereign God who has chosen us. Why? I have no idea. But for his goodwill and pleasure and for his grace, he chose me. I don't know other reason why. He would choose me and not someone else, but he chose me. It was his glory and grace. Oh, the results would be worship. There's also be gratitude. Oh, there's also be assurance. <laughs> this is God's plan. This is God's doing. Oh, may I give you comfort and confidence as well this evening. And it's this worship and this gratitude that we see in this doxology. It's what Paul is doing in this one long sentence. But it doesn't stop there. He chose us. He predestined us. He redeemed us all according to his good will and pleasure. But he also let us in. He revealed the mystery of what he was doing. Not just in choosing you, but he, he backs up. I want you to see what I'm doing in Christ. Oh, it's about you. But it's so much grander. It's so much bigger than just about you. You're part of what I am doing. But it's so much bigger. And I want you to know, as my children, I want you to know the mystery of my will. Or the plan, as it says, for the fullness of time set forth in Christ. So what is the mystery of this will that he has revealed to his children, to his people, to those who are in Christ? What is it? Here's something over here. Yeah. Christ in the hope of glory. Good. But what do we see here? Let's look at that is a good answer and a truthful answer. But according to Ephesians 9 and 10, what specifically is that mystery? Because Paul defines mystery a little differently from different angles in his different letters. To bring all things together in Christ. Yeah, and in the ESV, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Yes, same concept, same idea. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. That is his cosmic plan. Let's unpack that a little more. The, 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 uh, the verb there in the original language in the Greek 
literally could be interpreted, it's the summing up of all things. To sum up is, is the verb used there. In fact, the NASB uses that terminology. His plan is the summing up of all things in Christ. The NIV puts it this way. It's to bring all things together under one head, who is Christ. That is God's ultimate plan. That all things, whether in heaven or on earth, all created things will come under his headship and rulership. That is his plan. But what does that mean, really? It's a curious statement in some ways. Does it mean that he'll then save all people? doesn't say that. He's not speaking of universal salvation here. All right? He doesn't say that all be saved under his headship. I think we get a better understanding of what he's saying when we go down later in the chapter, chapter 1, let's scoot over or scoot down to verse 21. When Paul is speaking about the power of God revealed in Christ, when he was exalted to heaven, it says in verse 21 that Christ is exalted to the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age, also in the one to come. I'll stop there. See that phraseology there? Far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, dominion, and above every name that is named. Above every name that is named. His name, Lord is above all else. Where else do we hear that phraseology? Does that, does that sound familiar at all to you? The name that is above every name? Okay, here's some rings there. I, th- I think I'm being in Colossians, but I'm thinking of another epistle of Paul. Philippians. You know what I think of? Philippians 2, right? Philippians. Let me read Philippians 2.8 for you. It says, And being found in human form, the speaking of Christ, this is Philippians 2.8, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name, here we go, that is above every name. Why? Verse 10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That every knee should bow. This gathering up, this summing up, this bringing together under Christ's headship means that in the fulfillment of time, upon the consummation of God the Father's plan, i.e. Christ's return, all enmity and all rebellion against God will be brought to a sudden end here on earth. Every, every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, before Christ, our conquering king, when he returns. Oh, that's a powerful truth. That's what I believe it means when he will sum up all things in Christ. Everything will be subject to him all things, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. 
I remember this truth hitting home so poignantly. Many years ago, I was traveling in the Middle East in the country of Turkey, and I was doing some legwork for a church planning team. Things weren't going well. I was traveling actually to a number of the cities that are mentioned by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. I was in one city. Things didn't go well at all. I ended up being arrested under house arrest in Turkey for a number of days. Finally, I was released with my team and we went off to another city called Konya. It's the biblical city of Iconium that you read about in Acts. We were going there as forerunners to another church planning team. It had been one long, tough month. Persecution to the gospel, opposition to the gospel. And just like Paul in the city of Konya, here I was in Iconium. Excuse me. Here I was in Iconium. Now, the the city of Konya. (laughs) Basically, chased out the city. I remember being the one evening on this hillside overlooking this city and just quoting Philippians 2. It was one of those most powerful moments just saying, Lord, I know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. There'll be one or two ways, Lord, that people here in Turkey in this city will confess you as your children or they'll confess you as your enemies. But one way or the other, they will confess Christ as Lord and they will bow their knee. Lord, may they bow their knee to you now as your children and not one day as your objects of wrath. I remember praying that over the city. It just hit me. Oh, one day every knee will bow. We read in Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The ESV study Bible says this about this verse in Colossians 1.19. That was very helpful. It says this, Jesus will ultimately quell all rebellion against God and his purposes. For believers, this means present reconciliation to God as his friends, children. As for non-believers, and the demonic powers, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them, for their rebellion will be decisively defeated by Christ as conquering king, so they can no longer do any harm in the universe. The basis of Christ's reign of peace is the blood of his cross. The cross truly is the pivotal point in human and cosmic history. So what's the Father's plan? In other words, it's nothing less than cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. So what is our spiritual blessing then? That we can know God's grand plan and scheme. We can know how it's all going to turn out in the end. You look around today, you think, well, we look at these rogue states, we hear the news of 
North Korea flooding its power and bombing an island of South Korea. We hear about this guy who lives and rules in Cuba, who's been there for over 40 years, who is ruling directly or indirectly. We hear about Al-Qaeda and their operatives who are still hiding out in the caves and the rocks and the mountains of Pakistan and Afghanistan. Church, they're on our rogue states. They're on a tight leash. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. God is reconciling all creation to himself, some as his children, others in judgment, some as recipients of his grace, others recipients of his just judgment and wrath. There are no rogue cells. There are no rogue fires. There are no rogue hurricanes or rogue states or rogue demonic powers somehow on the loose, independent of God. Oh, they're doing their work now. But God has them on a leash, as I mentioned. And they will account. It says in Romans 8 that all creation groans and waits for redemption. Oh, for the taint of sin to be removed. Oh, and for the new heavens and new earth. God is coming back to reconcile all things to himself in grace or judgment, one way or the other. It will be done. He's uniting all things, and he's uniting you and me as well under his rule, under his rulership, under his headship. What is question number seven, this inheritance that we are to receive in verse 11 in your homework there? This inheritance, what's that? Okay, the immeasurable greatness of his power could be, he doesn't define it, but could be, Lenny, good. Sorry, what's it again, Anna? Our adoption in Christ, that's, that's a blessing. Which is of his glory? Yeah, I think that comes close to it as well. He doesn't quite define it, does he? But it would seem to be the context here in one sense, our inheritance is none other than Christ himself and his glory. We are in Christ. He's our inheritance. But you know what? What's interesting about this verse, verse 11, which you can't see in the ESV translation, is that the verb is actually in the passive voice. And I'll explain that. It's a little nuanced. Another way you could translate verse 11 is this. We were chosen as an inheritance. It's not just we've obtained an inheritance. We've obtained Christ and his glory and all these blessings. We have. But we have been chosen as an inheritance. Whose inheritance? Christ's inheritance. Christ is summing up all things in himself. We are his inheritance. We are the inheritance of the victorious king. We are his. We see that most clearly in verse 18 of Ephesians 1. Let's go down a few verses there in verse 18. Paul in his prayer says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What's the inheritance he's talking about? It's you. You are Christ's inheritance. You are his heritage. You are his spoil, so to speak. You belong to him. So in one sense, We've attained an inheritance that is Christ and his glory. In another sense, you are his inheritance. You belong to him. He is summing up all things in himself. And he is summing up you as 
his child as his children. Pretty cool, isn't it? Christ summing up all things under his headship in a we are living proof as those who are in Christ. And this is a sure deal. Why? The last two blessings, right? We've been sealed, sealed with the Holy Spirit. This sealing is a sign of ownership. God has purchased us. We are his possession. He certifies the quality of his heritage. We are his inheritance. We are sealed. This word sealed, the same word used for sealing cattle or even slaves. We have been branded by God, by Christ. We've been branded. When you're branded, you belong to your master, the person who branded you. Right? So Holy Spirit is the seal sent by the Son Jesus. Right? He's a seal upon you. You've been branded. You belong to him. But it's also a seal of security against theft as well. <laughs> right? You know, steal a cattle? I might not want to steal one that has been branded, okay? You're going to know where he comes from, okay? Who his owner is. Because he's branded. You've been branded, okay? By the Spirit. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, lastly, is a guarantee of what? He's a guarantee of your inheritance. So you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as his inheritance. And that same Spirit's been given to you as a guarantee of your inheritance as well. The Holy Spirit is a pledge. It's an earnest. It's a down payment of what is yet to come. That you belong to him, he belongs to you of our inheritance. The Spirit is the first installment, so to speak, that the total price will be paid in full when Christ returns and we are his. Uh, That we can't be snatched away from Christ. We can't. We've been sealed. We've been branded. We've been given his Holy Spirit as a guarantor, as a down payment. We can't lose our salvation. We can't lose our status as children of God. He chose us before the foundation of this earth to be adopted as his sons, as his children, sealed and branded. It's guaranteed, church. It's guaranteed. What does that produce? A comfort and assurance a certainty as well. And lastly, Paul comes to a new sentence, the last sentence and paragraph of chapter 1. And he reveals his prayers to the Ephesians based on this wonderful doxology that we've just gone through, this wonderful praise to God. And he gives us three realities that Paul prays that his readers, thus us as well, would come to know. What are those three things, realities, that Paul prays for? Anyone? that we see in verses 18 and 19. Okay, number one, the hope of our calling. Good. Hmm? Yeah, the riches of our glorious inheritance, I think would be two. And the greatness of his power. So hope, riches of his inheritance, and power. And yes, Lenny, that our eyes of our heart may be enlightened that we may see, understand, and know this to be true, right? That those are ours in Christ. Oh, that we would know it and see it as well. And then question number 10, what are the four ways that God has demonstrated the greatness of his power? I'll mention the four here. His, res- his resurrection, 
His enthronement, number two, good. Under his authority, right? His headship. Yeah, I put it this way. His resurrection, his enthronement, his exaltation, and his headship. What's that? With his headship, right? And he is given to the church and the church to him, right? That he may be head over the church. What is the significance of that? They may be head over the church. This is the first reference to church. And he brings it in the very last part of Ephesians chapter 1. That wasn't part of your homework question. It's a bonus question. Let me answer it for you. God's power is manifest through Christ, and particularly his headship. Uniquely, his headship over the church whom he has been given and whom we have been given to. You see, God is summing up all things in Christ. And exhibit A of this summing up is you. It's a church. You want to know what God's doing in this universe, in this world? He's summing up all things. And the church is his exhibit his prime exhibit of what he is doing. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. It's the church who was God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. I love that. Say it again. It's the church who was God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. The church is not only the pattern, but also the means that God has chosen to show that his plan will be triumphant. He's chosen the church by reconciling you and me together as one people under his headship. He's giving us a foretaste of what he's going to be doing and what he is doing now. And he gives us that taste, that exhibits through the church. That his purposes are moving forward triumphantly to their climax when Christ returns. It's the church who is the wisdom and the cosmic witness of God's glorious plan. We see that in chapter 3, verse 10. We'll get there in a couple months. It's a great passage. It's the church that is the wisdom of God. It's the church that is a witness of God's plan. So you want to see evidence of God's reconciling work through Christ? Look no farther. Look to the church. He's doing it even now. This last point is key. I want you to catch this. I want to be careful on how I explain it. These first two chapters are what is true of us in Christ, right? The last two chapters are what we call the imperatives, how we're to walk, how we're to live. The imperatives of the Christians in the book of Ephesians, about how we use our tongue, about controlling our anger, on and on, are directed at sins, particular sins which cause dissension and alienation with the body. He's addressing sins that work against this unity. He's addressing sins that work against this witness of God's reconciling work. That's why he is so concerned in this book about unity 
preserving the peace and unity among one another. It's our unity that we share in Christ that speaks of Christ's reconciling work. So when we're doing things in our life, we're living a life that is counter to that, that is sowing the seeds of discord through our speech or through our actions, we are slandering his work. We are testifying against what he has done in Christ by reconciling us together, different people, different ages, different ethnicities, bringing them together as one, Jew and Gentile, as one, unified in Christ. So all these commands we're going to talk about later on, walk worthy of the gospel, walk in love, walk in light, walk worthy, is preserve the unity that we, the church, may testify to Christ's reconciling work, that all things will be united in him. You catch that? That is a major theme here in the book of Ephesians. So what's the Father's purpose in chapter 1? Verses 9 and 10. It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. May our hearts be enlightened to this glorious truth as we study the book of Ephesians. Verses 9 and 10, I believe are the key verses for the book of Ephesians, as I kind of alluded to last month. In verses 9 and 10, give meaning and weight to all the imperatives that we're going to talk about in the months to come. So what's the grand theme of Ephesians? I believe it's the cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. It's this plan that God the Father is executing through his Son and he's revealing through his church that he's summing up all things to himself. In their church, you have the book of Ephesians, wrapped up and introduced in this one amazing chapter, chapter one of Ephesians. Well, I'm going to stop there. I've been talking a lot tonight. We did not have our discussions. Thank you for your patience. I hope it's coming together. We're working to see the big picture. What we did tonight was set the stage for the rest of your study, chapters two, three, and following. So with that in mind, I'm going to give your homework. I'm going to email them out, email probably the homework out to you tomorrow, the next day. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing we did this last month. I'm going to ask you to read the chapter of Ephesians, chapter 2, that is, 10 times. You may say, 10 times, Corey. Let me help you out here. I read chapter 2 out loud, so you, know, you could probably read much faster in your mind, right? Right. Out loud's a little slower. Read it one time, it took me ten, two minutes, not ten, it took me two minutes and ten seconds. So to read Ephesians 2, ten times, would take you 21 minutes and 40 seconds. That's pretty doable. One month, 20 minutes, no complaining, church, no complaining there. You can do that. Is that doable? That is doable. Ten times. Oh, you to read it ten times? I'm going to give you 10 questions. So the 10-10 principle. 10 times, I'm going to give you 10 questions. I had this prepared, but I'm going to email them to the home group leaders to give out to you. I'm also going to put them in our Palm Vista Informed next week as well so you can access that homework online as well. When we meet again, February 9th, I believe it is, February 9th. 
So if you have any more grow photos, bring them my way. And if you have any more questions, ask your home group leaders. They would love to help you out there. And uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions too that you may have at this time. So you are dismissed. If you have questions, you can come on out front, Sean. All right. Thanks, guys, for your patience and attentiveness.